0: In the last episode of The Quest, Meeting Jesus on the Road, I said I believe in Christ because, one, I believe in God, not, not the God of philosophers and theologians or of doctrinaire fundamentalist, but of Abraham and Sarah, of Moses, of Mary and Martha, of Paul and John and Matthew and all the rest. In short, I believe in Christ because I believe in the God of the Bible. I also said as a kind of second step that I believe in Christ because I have confidence in the basic integrity of the Bible, specifically in the four canonical Gospels. A third reason I can now give as following naturally upon the first two Is that I believe in Christ because I am convinced not only in the reality of God and in the essential reliability of the Bible, but that I'm convinced that in Scripture God conveyed a message, a message that was realized in Christ. If the gospel narratives are correct, as confessing scholars believe they are, then Jesus clearly claimed to have fulfilled the ancient prophecies concerning the Messiah. Certainly, without doubt, his earliest followers believe he had, in fact, made claims of prophetic fulfillment. Prophecy, as every Bible student learns in early in her or his studies, can mean two similar but uh, rather different things. One, it can mean seeing into and predicting the future, a kind of foretelling of events. Or two, it can mean revealing, explaining, or making clear the significance of events now occurring. What is commonly known as uh, forthtelling rather than foretelling? Of course, the two are not always that neatly separated, so that in revealing the deeper meaning of things as they were happening, the prophets also indicated that their prophecies contained significant implications for the future. When Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple, it is actually a prophesying of the forth-telling kind michael langford therefore notes in this in his little book unblind faith jesus was not crystal ball gazing but seeing the natural outcome of the tensions between the romans and the jews and in particular the probable result of the growth of the zealot party his prophecy was a kind of political realism it was not a case of This is what is laid down for the future, but this is how things are going to turn out if people continue with their present policies. The real key to understanding the Old Testament prophets is not to focus on and meticulously analyze every minute detail of each one but to grasp them as one consistent and coherent whole. It it is to grasp the totality of the prophetic consciousness, of the prophetic narrative. By prophetic consciousness, I mean this. The Old Testament prophets believed that humanity was created for loving communion, for fellowship, for spiritual intimacy with God. And that communion, fellowship, or intimacy with God requires trust in the goodness of God. Every sin, every sin is essentially a failure to trust God's goodness and to instead go my own way. The prophets saw that Israel, beginning with Abraham, had been called, chosen to be, as they put it, a light to the nations. They were, as a nation and as a people, to be the living witness of what it means to live a life of faith, of of profound trust in God, a life life of, of trust in God as loving mother or loving father. God is just, merciful, forgiving, infinitely good, wise, and powerful, and trustworthy. The prophets, with their insights into the character of God, taught what it meant for the people of Israel to live in faith, in trust, in harmony with the reality and character of God. To fulfill, to use an expression used earlier in these podcasts, the dream of God for peace, for justice, for love, for divine communion. As the prophets taught Israel and called the nation to remember the reason for its very existence as they did all this forth-telling, they looked forward to the time when God would complete, uh, foretold when God uh, would complete what he had begun in the people of Israel. They saw all of this happening through a Messiah who would come to deliver them. This Messiah, they prophesied, this is their message, this Messiah, they prophesied, would not be a conquering warrior, but a suffering servant who overcomes evil with good, fear with peace, despair with hope, and hate with love. It is in light of this prophetic consciousness intensely felt by oppressed first century Jews at the time of Jesus' birth that the Messianic prophecies must be read and must be understood. Now I know there are people who have difficulty with these prophecies as they are used in the New Testament, that having grown up with a frequent assurance that numerous and very precise Messianic prophecies have found clear fulfillment in the life and work of Jesus, um, more accurate than the Nostradamus prophecies, uh, but simply on those lines, young evangelical students have often had their faith severely shaken by the discovery that numerous Old Testament predictions seem to have found fulfillment in events closer to the time and the setting in which they were originally made. There sometimes appears to be a discrepancy between what is clearly the intended meaning of an Old Testament author and the interpretation given a prophecy by the New Testament author. Or some prophecies in their original setting, when read, when, when read in their original setting, read from the Old Testament, do not look like predictions at all. Perhaps uh, one of the best known examples of this is Matthew's use of Isaiah seven fourteen through sixteen. His use of of Isaiah as a as prophetic evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew he does that in Matthew one twenty one through twenty three. In Isaiah. The kingdom of Judah is about to be invaded by the combined forces of Israel and Syria. The prophet tells King Ahaz of Judah, there is nothing to fear and that he should remain calm, focused, and firm. Ahaz, Isaiah says, will know this prediction that all will be well, is a true prophecy <clears throat> by th- this sign. We'll know it's true uh, in that um, uh, the, the prophecy that Isaiah now makes will, is true. In the time, Isaiah says, here's his prophecy, that it takes for a virgin, a young unmarried woman to marry, conceive, bear a child, and for that child to begin eating cheese curds and honey. Ephraim, that is Israel, and Syria will themselves be devastated. This prophecy of Isaiah was not only fulfilled some 700 years before the birth of Christ, but seems to make no Messianic references at all. The closest connection is that in both passages, the child is named Emmanuel, Isaiah 7.14, or Jesus, Matthew one twenty one, both of which mean, for God is with us, or God saves his people. Indeed this may this may be what is the most crucial element for Matthew. God is with us. What contemporary Bible readers usually fail to take into account is how very different ancient Hebrew thinking was from that of the modern Western man or woman, not inferior, but very different. They were, for example, uh, the ancient Hebrews, far less abstract and much more concrete in their thinking. The reader or interpreter was more personally involved with the text than the modern New Testament scholar who attempts to remain Coolly objective and detached. It reminds me of the famous French philosopher Paul Ricoeur saying, no one can get near what the text says without living in the aura of its meaning. Where it may seem to us that the New Testament authors were being pretty cavalier in their use of prophecy, the fact is, They were following well-developed, well-practiced, carefully prescribed rules of scribal and rabbinical interpretation. In fact, I've posted and saved an essay, I I think either on on, uh, academia.com, my account there, or on my blog, or, or both. The essay is, Turtles all the way down, and the prophetic quandary—the use of messianic prophecies by New Testament writers. So, in the above, in the above example of Matthew's use of Isaiah seven fourteen through sixteen, it 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 all makes sense once it is recognized that Matthew is interpreting Isaiah according to a well-established hermeneutical rule. When, for example, uh, instance, uh, Jesus argued, this is another example of the use of this rule. When Jesus argued that if God cared for the birds, surely he cared much more for human beings, Matthew six twenty six. he was arguing in good rabbinic fashion from um, what is known as from the less important to the more important. He was arguing according to the principle from the lesser to the greater. And when Matthew quoted Isaiah 7.14 in reference to the birth and the naming of Jesus, he was also interpreting the text on the basis of this principle of from the lesser to the greater. In short, Matthew was following the accepted hermeneutical principle which reasoned like this. If this was true then and there, how much more is it true here and now? Matthew's interpretation then was not nearly as arbitrary as it sounds 2,000 years later in our Western cultural context. I will mention only one other hermeneutical principle that is known as typology uh, because it relates uh, to both prophecy and history. Typological interpretation is more a way of uh, viewing history than it is an exegetical or uh, uh, hermeneutical uh, and interpretive method. In typological thinking, an earlier event, an earlier person or institution, is seen as somehow foreshadowing a later event, person, or institution known as the antitype. Typology assumes that God is at work in history, that there are reoccurring patterns uh, throughout history that reveal the nature of God and that both predict and fulfill later reoccurrences of the pattern in deeper and larger ways. From the typological perspective, uh, history itself is seen as prophetic of God's ultimate purpose. If we think of Carl Jung's concept of archetypes, the notion of typology may seem uh, a little more comprehensible in our contemporary context. The Greek term archi means things like first, type, imprint, impress, or pattern. For Jung, an archetype is therefore a basic, primordial, pre existing pattern. Jung believed there were patterns of uh, circumstances, uh, symbols, and thoughts that reoccur again and again, uh, reoccur consistently enough through history and time to be considered as universal concepts or events. These archetypes represent, he thought, unseen psychological, um, psychic energy at work. The person of traditional faith would say that it is simply the manifestation of spiritual forces. Until the Enlightenment, it was thought that human beings had the capacity to receive to, to receive meaning from the realm of the spiritual and to form it into inner images that can then become the objects of reflection and reason. The well known Jungian analyst Robert Johnson uh, makes this significant observation. The disaster, he says, that has overtaken the modern world in the completes, is the complete splitting of the conscious mind from its roots in the unconscious. All forms of interaction with the unconscious that nourished our ancestors, dreams, visions, ritual, religious experience, are largely lost to us, dismissed by the modern mind as primitive or superstitious, my point is simply that we should not too quickly dismiss typology as a reading into historical events of something that is not there. And even more importantly, recognize how biblical typology points us to the reality of the prophetic messianic consciousness. The foretelling of the prophets. Once more, then, I say simply that one reason I believe in Christ is that I am thoroughly convinced that in sacred scripture, God conveys a message, as he did in the prophets. God conveys a message in scripture that um, finds its culmination in Jesus Christ. I want, if I can, to work in one more, a fourth reason for why I believe in Christ, why I believe in every sense of the word, why I think the biblical claims regarding Jesus are true, why I place as best I can my wholehearted trust in Christ, and why every day I consecrate my heart anew to Christ. My problem is I really have no words for this fourth reason, although it is an entirely practical and down-to-earth reason. I will begin by trying to formulate it as something like this. I believe in Christ because that belief is verified for me by experience, by love, by the knowledge of love by tacit knowledge, by that sort of knowledge that I said in the podcast chapter on how do we know what we know, that kind of knowledge that transcends but does not contradict scientific, rational, or conventional ways of knowing. Let me see if I can explain a little further. In John 7, there is this entirely simple but incredibly profound assertion. It is found in verse 17, where Jesus says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. I have quite a fixed conviction that some things are best known, some would say they are only known by experience, by living into them by living in the aura of their main by deep and personal and passionate engagement or encounter with them and the longer and more fully i have attempted to live the teaching of jesus the more certain i have become convinced that they are divine in origin E. Stanley Jones began one of his most thoughtful books by asking whether there is such a thing as the way. Is, he asked, our quest, our our search for the way, an exercise in futility? Or is it possible that the way is written into the very nature of reality, written into reality much like physical laws are inherent in reality? When the philosopher Kant said, two things strike me with awe, the starry skies above and the moral law within, did he mean that the laws of those two worlds uh, are equally dependable and equally authoritative and equally inescapable? Jones's question is, of course, rhetor- rhetorical. No one has to be a clinical psychologist to know that there is a way to live and a way not to live, that there is a way to live that gets results, and there is, sadly, a way to live that gets consequences. In short, as Jones argued, there is a way and there is a not-the-way. Glennie Chestnut and his God and Spirituality, Philosophical Essays, makes much the same argument. Chestnut maintains that real changes, not only in outward behavior, but in character, in personality structure, that the transformation of of lives is observable. For example, that it's, it's observable and documented in Alcoholics Anonymous. That this all points to the objective existence of spiritual forces, principles, truths, like grace and the reality of God. My point is that there is a way, and the way for Christians is not a doctrine, not a concept, not a theology, not a philosophy, not an idea, but a person. And when we live in conscious connection with the living Christ, then the way is self-verifying. Jesus said, the way, uh, excuse me, uh, Jones said, the way must be more than a weight of probabilities. The way must be more than a weight of probabilities. It must be as self-verifying as love is to the heart. When we find our feet on the way, he said, we must know that while we have not arrived at the goal, nevertheless, this is it. This is the way. So I will summarize for now why I trust Christ like this. One, I believe in Yahweh, the one who is the God of the men and women of Holy Scripture. Two, I believe that Scripture is essentially trustworthy. Three, I believe that through oral tradition and scripture, God has communicated the divine will, the divine dream, the purpose for humanity, which finds its culmination in Jesus Christ. And four, but not last, I trust Christ because I find the Jesus way to be self-verifying.